Uh, turn in your Bibles to Luke 6, verses 20 through 21. Uh, last time we were together, we uh, were looking at uh, and summarizing uh, the Beatitudes, and these ideals that Jesus identifies as uh, the virtues of the kingdom of God. And we began to contrast them with the ideals of the world. The disciples of Christ are to prize the spiritual over the material, the eternal over the temporal, the next world over this world, then over now, the rewards of heaven uh, over the rewards of, of earth. Uh, Jesus is saying, in effect, that the, the good life, blessed by God, favored and approved by him, is very, very different than what the world imagines. Uh, the world uh, assumes that it's the rich and the powerful that are favored by God or favored by fate or fortune or something is favoring them because they, they have all the, the fun and the fame and, and all of the pleasure and the, and the comfort that this world affords. And so surely they are, they are the favored ones. And in the Beatitudes, Jesus is saying exactly the opposite. Contrary to all expectations, as we will attempt to see this morning, it's the poor and the hungry who are those who are blessed and approved and rewarded by God. So looking at verse 20 of uh, Luke chapter 6, it says, He lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And of course, they were the poor. They had left everything. And in order to follow Jesus, they left their homes, they left their vocations, and they were poor. So what's he, what's he talking about? Who are those who are poor? Well, we need to, we need to affirm, as, as we did last week, that this is, this is not simply those who are impoverished. There, there is a connection between piety and poverty. We underscored that last week. They often are found together. And, and the opposite is often found together. It's uh, often uh, those who have all that the world has to offer that have no particular need of God at all, and it's those who are very needy who cry out to God. But it's not simply poverty that Jesus has in mind here. In the Old Testament, the poor, the ani is the Hebrew word, they are those who are wrongfully poor. They are the oppressed they are the victims of the powerful. There's a, there's a nuance to the word poor in the Old Testament. They come to represent the humble and the lowly and the devout, and that is why God is their defender and the, why the Messiah is their deliverer. And, and so in, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives us the definitive interpretation of how we are to understand the poor when he elaborates that it is the poor in spirit. He makes explicit there what he has in mind. So that it's not uh, poverty per se, it's a spiritual poverty. Uh, there's no particular virtue in poverty. Often the poor are poor because they're idle, or because they waste their resources, or they spend their money foolishly. And some of those who are poor are proud and are profane and are irreligious and immoral. Uh, some of the worst conduct in the world today is, is found in the poorest elements of our society, the most vulgar language and lyrics, the, the most uh, crude of, of, of fashions, the most morally degrading uh, behavior often is to be found there. No, when Jesus is talking about the poor, he's talking about the pious poor. 
He's talking about those who are the marginalized element. So along with the poor, the widow, the orphan, uh, the fatherless, they together are those who are blessed of God. Again, there's no virtue in poverty itself, and yet often with poverty there is found piety, and it is the pious poor that uh, Jesus has in mind. We find the same in James 2, verse 5. God has chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. Uh, there his sovereign, his sovereign grace is in view. God has chosen who? Those who are poor in the world to be what? To be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom of God. So who are they? They are the devout poor. Uh, secondly, what are they promised? Well, they're promised that they are blessed and they're promised that they will receive the kingdom of God. Yours is the kingdom of God, he says. Uh, and notice that the, the, the verb is in the present tense. And with the other Beatitudes, it's you shall. There's a, there's a, a future element to it. It may be entered into in the present, but, the, but primarily the benefit is the received in eternity. But in here, it's the present tense. Theirs is, yours is. Uh, the kingdom of God. Well, what's the kingdom of God? Well, it's both the, the rule and the realm. Okay, so because it's where God's rule is established, it then becomes a realm as well. Uh, so it's both, uh, it's both um, where God is ruling and, and being followed and, and obeyed and honored. Um, and where that rule is, of course, then that, that, that establishes a realm, whether it's in an individual human heart or in a family or in a community or, or, or more widely. So keep in mind that the kingdom is both a rule and a realm, which means it is that place where uh, those who are a part of that kingdom receive his provision, receive his protection. Where It's where they are safe and secure, where there is peace and justice, where there is law and liberty, and where there is joy and contentment. In other words, the kingdom of God represents all of the benefits of salvation. And they receive the promise of, of Philippians 4.19, that my God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches in, in glory in Christ Jesus. So the totality of salvation is what's in view when, as Jesus speaks of the, the kingdom of God. All the benefits of the kingdom, of the rule and reign of Christ, uh, are in view. Uh, well, how then may I become poor in spirit? How is this poverty of spirit whereby I gain entrance into the kingdom of God? How may it be, be gained? Well, I think it begins with this. It begins with recognizing our spiritual pride. It begins with re a recognition of our own arrogance, of the spirit of self-sufficiency, the assumption that uh, I have divine approval as I am. It's, uh, it's, um, it begins with recognizing I have a misplaced confidence of my standing with God. That whole self-confidence in connection with our relationship with God is a thing that must be recognized and repudiated. So to become spiritually poor it begins with a, a recognizing of our spiritual pride our spiritual arrogance, our, 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 our self-sufficiency, our misplaced confidence. And, and, and with that, then, an understanding of our, 
of our spiritual destitution, our, our spiritual poverty, our spiritual bankruptcy. In other words, what's necessary is that I become truly self-aware, that I have a powerful sense of my own sin, that I recognize that I have no goodness or virtue of myself. As the Apostle Paul says, uh, even as a believer in Romans chapter 7, he says, I have, that, I have no good in me that is in my flesh. It's a recognition that I am of myself devoid of all spiritual good. This is fundamental, it's foundational to all the ideals of the, Be of the Beatitudes and all of the ideals of the Sermon on the Plain, which we're studying. This is the beginning of the Christian life. This humbling, this pride-vanquishing, soul-prostrating humility, this poverty of spirit that recognizes one's spiritual destitution. If I, if I am ever to be blessed by God, I need to know that I'm a sinner. I need to know that I'm lost. I need to know that I'm under the curse and condemnation of God. I need to know of my heart corruption. I need to know that my soul is poisoned and that I cannot save myself. You know, one of our favorite hymns is Jesus, Lover of My Soul. Charles Wesley uh, wrote the words, uh, do, you, do, you, do you recognize that as we sing that hymn, we sing, I am all unrighteousness, vile and full of sin I am? It's only those who are poor in spirit that are able to make that affirmation. Uh, very, very similarly, only, only those who are poor in spirit can sing along with uh, Augustus' top lady, the third stanza of Rock of Ages, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling, naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace, and then what? Foul I to the fountain fly. That's spiritual poverty. Wash me, Savior, or I die. That's a, that's a recognition, a recognition of one who is poor in spirit, uh, who, who understands his or her spiritual poverty. Uh, the world, we need to say, the world doesn't understand this. It doesn't understand humility. It doesn't understand self-abasement. What the world admires is those who are self-reliant and self-confident and self-promoting. Our, our civilization features prominently uh, those who uh, are the attention-grabbing and, and chest-thumping athlete or the self-assertive politician or the self-promoting and self-reliant uh, businessman. We have this celebrity culture, don't we? in which we, awards are, 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 are distributed unrelated to the character of, of, of those people that are famous for being famous and, and rewarded and approved of, apart from any, 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 any personal virtue. And this can easily be transferred to our thinking about God, that he approves of us because we're experiencing some success in this world, and we seem to have the approval of the world. And therefore, God uh, approves of me. And, and I remind him of this, like, uh, like the Pharisee. Uh, the Pharisee in, in, in Luke chapter 18, who, who, who brings to God's attention that I am not like other men, and points over to the publican there. I'm not like he is. So reminds God of, of, my, of, of his virtue and of, of what an upright citizen he is and what, what a religious and immoral individual that he is. And, 
And uh, as such, he must have divine approval. He must have God's favor. No, the gateway to the kingdom of God is poverty of spirit. This is at the, at the, at the base. This is at the foundation. Jesus uh, deliberately starts here uh, because this is the beginning of the Christian life. This is the beginning of conversion when we recognize our spiritual poverty, that we have nothing of ourselves to commend us to God, nothing whatsoever. And so we come to him humbled and, and, and broken and, and needy and crying out to, for mercy and, and are led to find that that mercy is extended to us in Jesus Christ. The Christ Jesus came into the world to save who? Sinners. Yeah, sinners that recognize themselves to be sinners. He came to seek and to save the lost, those who know that they are lost. Who don't, not, not the ones that think they have it all together. Uh, that, not, not, not the ones that think that they're okay because everybody says they're okay and they think they're okay and so they must be right with God. If everyone else approves of them, God must approve of them too. No. No, it starts with this, this humility, this brokenness, this Poverty of spirit, this humbling of oneself uh, before God. Poverty of spirit. Jesus says, blessed are those who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. All right, then secondly, he speaks of hunger. Verse 21, blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Uh, so we, we want to ask the same questions of this Beatitude, as we asked of the previous beatitude. Who are they? Well, again, we're not talking about physical hunger. There's no, there's, no, there's no virtue in being underfed. He's not saying blessed are the malnourished. He's not even saying blessed are those who periodically fast. In the Old Testament, hunger is a metaphor for spiritual desire. For example, Isaiah 55, 1, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk, clearly spiritual wine, spiritual milk, without money and without, without price. Uh, Psalm 63, uh, verse 1, O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Amos 8.11 speaks of the spiritual condition of Israel as one in which there is a famine for the Word of God. They'd lost their appetite for it. And so they were no longer feeding spiritually on the Word of God. And so it, it's likened to a famine, a situation where there is no uh, provision at all. And again, if we go to the Sermon on the Mount, Remember, this is the Sermon on the Plain. Jesus makes explicit there, which is implicit here, where he, he, he is a, a, a specifies that it is those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Uh, we can divide that into an in, 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 in imputed righteousness, where we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, and they yearn for, that is, a righteous status, a right standing with God, at which we attain when we are by faith clothed in the righteousness of Christ, and then also an, an imparted righteousness, where we actually become righteous in our 
conduct. In fact, we just talked about this in our catechism class. There's two kinds, two, two elements of righteousness. There's, there's the imputed and there's the imparted. There's what we're credited with and then there's that which we actually become. And so Jesus here is talking about a hunger for righteousness, or more broadly here, a hunger for God, a hunger for the things of God, a hunger for spiritual things. Now, it's not a, a hunger for the things that are material. So it's a very strong idea uh, because what, what happens when one is hungry? Well, when one is truly hungry, hunger just takes over. It, it overcomes all, it, it overcomes everything. It beca one becomes obsessed with it. It completely possesses one's outlook, and one uh, is, uh, is completely captivated by the need to get food, to satisfy the hunger, to quench the thirst. You may recall the story of Louis Zamperini, for, who for uh, 30 days was in a raft in the middle of the Pacific during the Second World War, and how thirst was just overwhelming for them in the midst of all that water and the temptation to drink the salt water was, uh, was just overwhelming. Well, this is what he's speaking of, that hunger, that thirst for the things of God, for God, uh, for a right status with God, and therefore for righteousness, and for a life pleasing to God, and therefore holiness and, and, and righteousness. That's what Jesus has in view. In our family, uh, what, what, many times I've, I've heard family members say, that they were famished, and, and as a result, when meal is delayed, they're hangry because they're famished. Now, we're not really famished, but you get the idea that it just becomes, it just becomes a thing, doesn't it? I can't, wait to, I can't wait to eat. So you get a little snippet, a little, a little uh, view of what it actually means to be hungry and how self, uh, completely absorbing the desire is. And so that's what's in view here, is that Jesus is likening the blessed as those who spiritually hunger, who are overtaken with the desire for the spiritual. They are, as it were, possessed by that desire, obsessed with that desire for the things of God, for God himself. So it's, a, it's not a, a periodic interest. It's not the, the spiritual things are not something that just kind of fits in as it is convenient or something that's compartmentalized where, yeah, yes, I take care of that thing, uh, that desire, that need, you know, that interest, that element of my life. Uh, it's, I take care of that on, in, a, in, a, in an hour on Sunday. I give attention to that. Like I try to give attention to, you know, a, a number of different spheres and to be a well-rounded person. Of course, there's, there's a place for... Uh, the spiritual. No, that's not what's in view here. Jesus is speaking of those who are hungry, that is obsessed with the things of God. The Psalms provide a, 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 a profile of what that looks like. For example, Psalm 1 verse 2 speaks of those uh, who are blessed of God as meditating on the law of God day and night. Again, they're not just reading a verse in the morning with find, trying to find a blessed thought in, in, in the verse. No, day and night, that's their meditation. That's what they think about. You know, I remember when I first started to really grow as a Christian, I was working at the, the Beacon's moving van and storage in Santa Monica, California. It was a terrible job all day long, 12 hours a day during the summer, moving furniture. But I remember at the end of a day, 
all day long, been working, moving, and all that, and we're driving back, and I came to realize I'd been thinking about the things of God all day long. First time in my life I ever had done that. First time I ever realized that. That's the kind of thing that the psalmist is talking about. You're meditating upon, filled with the filled with the thoughts of God and the things of God and the implications of, of the, the reality of God and, and our relationship to God and, and what that means and how that applies and uh, how that permeates into, into every dimension of our lives. No, day and night, he's obsessed with it. Psalm 19, uh, 7 through 10, more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than the honey and the honeycomb. More desired than gold, more desired than riches. Or if food's your thing, it's sweeter than honey. Psalm 27, 4, a passage that has been so meaningful to me over the years and that we go to regularly. There the psalmist says, the one thing I desire, which I think all by itself is worth our contemplation. The one thing that I desire, what is that? How would you answer that question? What's the one thing? The one thing that you desire above all else? that comes before everything else that all the earth has to offer. What is that one thing? He says it is to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life that I might behold his beauty. That's, a, that's an individual that's captivated. That's David. He wants to behold the beauty of God, and he wants nothing else in comparison with that all the days of his life. Uh, Psalm 84, the psalmist says it's better to be in the, uh, out on God's porch, as it were, in the threshold than to be anywhere else. A day in your house, he says, is better than a thousand besides. A thousand times better than being anywhere else doing anything else. Psalm 63:1. there is this thirst, this yearning, this craving for the presence of God. Psalm 42:1. he's like the deer that is panting for the water brook, panting, thirsting for the living God. So Christianity, properly understood, is not just an, an intellectual exercise. Now, surely there is an intellectual element, element but it's, it can't be reduced to that. Neither can it be pursued with sound bites and half measures. It can't be pursued at bumper sticker depth. One, one can't approach God in a cool and casual way. No, there's, a, there's an ardency here. One is ardent for the things of God. Now, Jesus puts it this way in Luke 14, 26, if anyone comes after me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, again, in Matthew, G Jesus makes explicit his meaning, loves more than, replaces the word hate. It's hyperbole here, but to make the impact, to make, to make clear, to make emphatic the point that we, he must be our first love. He goes on, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. There's this total surrender to God and the things of God. That's what he has in view. Total captivation, total obsession with God and the things of God. And what's promised? It's promised he'll be satisfied. That this deep devotion to God is not burdensome. It's not religious drudgery. Rather, what results is true satisfaction and true fulfillment. And so again, we can go back to Jesus in John 6, 35, which we never tire of doing. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. What's he talking about? Spiritual satisfaction. 
spiritual, emotional, internal, contentedness, satisfaction, fullness. He who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. The soul will be satisfied. You will be satisfied. Uh, John 7, a chapter later, 37 and 38, if any man thirsts, Jesus says, let him come to me and drink, and from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. See, the world would have us think that, you know, the, the, where, we, where we're going to find fulfillment, satisfaction, it's going to be out there. It's going to be out there in the world. It's out there in the things of the world, the pleasures of the world, the status that the world confers, the preferments. Uh, that it uh, bequeaths. So, no, that's all that's to be found out there in the world. That's the life worth living. That's what's fulfilling. That's what's satisfying. If I, if I just had the things, if I just had the rewards, if I just had the benefits of the world, then I would be living the life that's, that's worth living. No, Jesus says, you come to him, and from your innermost being will flow rivers of living water. You thirst Profoundly, Jesus has insight into the human condition. We are brought into this world hungry and thirsty spiritually. And we try to find that which will fulfill and satisfy out there in the world. And it's, all those endeavors are doomed to fail. Why? Because the, the thirst is a spiritual thing and it can only be satisfied spiritually. Jesus says it can only be fulfilled by him. And when he fulfills it, it's not with drops from the faucet. It's not even with a stream of water. It's a river of living spiritual water that floods and refreshes the soul. That's what he's promising to, to all who come to him. And see what the world offers? You know, the world, when they hear, the world hears this, they're just astonished because they associate the things of God with sheer boredom. Monks and monasteries, cloisters and convents, tedious services, boring music, restrictions, limitations, obstructions to their fun. They think those are the things in which they find satisfaction and fulfillment. But they're all counterfeits. Jeremiah speaks of broken cisterns, cisterns, broken sisters that can hold no water. That's what the world offers, counterfeits, broken cisterns. And you, you pour the water into them, and they just, it, just, it just leaks right out again. And then you're empty again. And then you go back, and you pour more water in, and then the cistern, it's, it's empty again. That's life in the world. That's what Jeremiah is prophesying against. You've, you've forsaken the fountain of living waters, the only source of true refreshment for your soul, true fulfillment and satisfaction. You've forsaken them for the, for, for the world's counterfeits which cannot deliver what they promise. Go back to the living, the, the fountain, because it's only there that you'll find true refreshment. So how is this spiritual hunger attained? I think it begins with recognizing our hunger is primarily for the things of this world. That's where our appetites really are. We hunger for the things of this world, and it dis displaces our spiritual hunger. All of our passions and dreams and appetites are all focused on now, and so there's no room for the things of God. Uh, so where, where does, where does, uh, where is it that I go to attain to this spiritual hunger? I need to realize that I am devoid of spiritual good. I, I need to repudiate 
any possibility of fulfillment in this world. And along with that, I need to reject any personal virtue or righteousness by which I would think I might commend myself to God. Because behind that is, again, the whole idea that, uh, that, I, that I'm okay of myself. I, I need to recognize instead that I have no relationship to God. I have no access to God. He does not approve of me. He does not favor me. And recognize that he alone is able to satisfy and fulfill and in doing so, recognize that I am devoid of spiritual virtue. I do not hunger for God. I do not hunger for the things of God. Not in the fashion that Jesus, Jesus says we ought. I, I do not enjoy a relationship with God. I am not righteous as God counts righteousness. So the Apostle Paul warns about this. In Romans 10, verse 3, he speaks of those who are being ignorant of the righteousness of God. They seek to establish their own and refuse to submit to God's righteousness. See, this is the problem. I think I have my own righteousness. I think I'm okay with God. I think I'm on his side. I think that he approves of me. And so, as a consequence, I don't see the need of righteousness as God counts righteousness, and I don't submit to his righteousness which is the thing only to be attained in Christ. No, Isaiah says all of our righteousness is as filthy rags, Isaiah 64, 6. The apostle Paul similarly speaks of being found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own. In other words, no capacity in myself to get right with God, to be approved of God, to be favored by God, to be blessed of God. I have no capacity for that of myself. So I, I have no righteousness of my own that comes from the law, he says, but what do I have? I have that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God. That's the imputed righteousness, credited with that righteousness by faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends upon faith. I'm to pursue that. I'm to hunger for that, to seek that, to desire that above all else. That is to be my hunger. That is to be my thirst. And in addition, I'm to hunger for an inherent righteousness, holiness, hunger for holiness, a hunger and a thirst for personal righteousness, for Christ-likeness. I'm to hunger and thirst to be an imitator of God. That's the Apostle Paul's language in Ephesians 5.1, as his beloved children. That means abhorring all forms of evil, avoiding all that dulls that appetite for the things of God. Many things that are approved, that are not sinful of themselves, but they have the effect, they have the impact of, 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 of dulling that appetite, quenching that thirst, so abhorring all, all that is evil, avoiding that which dulls the appetite, and then embracing the Christian dis, dis, uh, disciplines that nurture and, and promote uh, and advance that appetite, uh, such as uh, the discipline of public worship, where I gather with the people of God, in the house of God, under the Word of God, where the Spirit of Christ promises to be present following that up throughout the week with my own Bible reading and, and prayer whereby I will gain a clearer vision of who God is and what I am not and what I can become in Christ. 
That stirs up the spiritual hunger, stirs up the spiritual thirst. So th these, are, these, these are serious things about, about which Jesus is speaking. Serious things. We're to be poor in spirit. Uh, we're to hunger and thirst for the, the righteousness of God. And, and yet, these promises to, to those who do, they inherit the kingdom of God and all the blessings of redemption and a right relationship with God, His approval, His blessing. And they receive this, the very satisfaction that the world longs for and pursues with religious fervor. Uh, they want to be fulfilled. They want to be satisfied. They pursue it with religious fervor and, and with, uh, with great energy and at great expense. They spare no cost to have that. And, and Jesus says, no, you, you, come, you come to me. You hunger after righteousness. You, you are earnest and, and sincere and devoted to pursuing that righteousness. You will be satisfied. You will have the very thing that the world wants but cannot attain, cannot ever, cannot ever find, will never attain or find, will never experience. You can have that. And so if we're thinking aright, we're going to understand about ourselves. We are poor in spirit. We are destitute of spiritual good, of ourselves. And if I'm thinking aright, I'm going to be pursuing the things of God. I'm going to be hungering and thirsting after them because I know it's only as God has made himself known in Christ and, and all the implications of that that I will find true satisfaction and fulfillment in this world. The Apostle Paul prays, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. May that prayer be fulfilled this morning as we pray together. Our Father in heaven, we do pray that you will fill us with that which only you can supply and have promised to supply it to us in Christ Jesus. Fill us with all joy and peace in believing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.